Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratz and I'm so glad you're here with us today. This is a special edition podcast. It's actually a live recording of a virtual presentation that Cray and I gave to the Denver Health Emergency Medicine Ultrasound group. And this was a fantastic collaboration. I have to give thanks to my buddy, Matt Racinti, for helping brainstorm this project and getting it all organized. In this podcast, we discuss an article, but not just that. We're also diving deep into the principles of dissecting a point-of-care ultrasound article. Now, the sound quality is not quite up to our usual standards, but I think it's reasonable enough that you can get through it. This is going to be a two-part podcast. The second part will be out a week after this one is released. There's tons of great content on here, so I really hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. And now, on to the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting us here to do this. We're pretty excited about this opportunity, and we had uh, a cool vision for it. So hopefully you'll share in that with us and help us out along in this process. So the idea is that we're going to try to accomplish two things, if not simultaneously, at least in quick succession. First, we're going to review this article, and hopefully you have the article or have read it or know about it, but if not, it doesn't matter. We're still going to learn from it. Secondly, as we dissect that article and talk about its strengths and weaknesses, we're going to hopefully extract some principles of how to gather evidence effectively from the point-of-care ultrasound literature. So we'll discuss certain pitfalls and pearls that are commonly encountered when you go through articles such as this one. So we're going to rely heavily, heavily on participation. We really would love if essentially you guys led the discussion or at least kind of provided the bulk of the material and then you know Cray and I just kind of pepper in our little comments or or jokes and uh, then we we all uh, get the most out of it so I like, think that's a really general... nice way to say that we're really lazy and you're going to do our talk for us. <laughs> Essentially, we, we forgot to prepare for this. And so if you guys could just give the lecture and uh, we'll just kind of sit back. No, but seriously, we did prepare for this. We're excited to make this a joint effort. Yeah, so essentially it will be a guided journey through gelling. Um, and ideally, we'd like to, barring our audio totally failing, which hopefully the first 15 minutes of this proves that it didn't, um, blending Denver Health, Ohio State, and Ultrasound Gel into an amazing podcast on kind of a behind the scenes of how we do it and why we're doing it. Yeah, and if you've heard Cray and I talk before, you know that we are strong advocates of something we have called evidence-based synology. And the synology is, is truly important because we're not just synographers where we are acquiring the images, but... In addition, we're doing other aspects of incorporating the information that we obtain into the patient care. So we're really 
synologists, which I used to encompass the entire spectrum of using point of care ultrasound appropriately. Yeah, so I think of abstracts like social media and Twitter and everything like that. Like you only have a limited number of characters to get your point across. And so you're going to want to make it the fanciest point possible. And all of that, social media, Twitter, et cetera, needs fact-checked. And an abstract is the same way. It needs fact-checked. You have to make sure that the meat kind of validates the initial kind of highlight points. So you got to look behind the curtain, essentially. Okay, so without further ado, it is time to get to our article. And the article we have selected for this very special discussion is titled, A Prospective Study of Optic Nerve Ultrasound for the Detection of Elevated Intracranial Pressure in Severe Traumatic Brain Injury. This was published in Critical Care Medicine, October 2020. And to discuss this with us, we are joined by some wonderful friends from Denver Health. So I think the first step in this is going to be talking about the introduction. So we would love to hear from you. What did you gain from the introduction? And furthermore, drawing on your own knowledge and experience, what can you tell us a little bit about using the optic nerve sheath diameter for detecting increased ICP? I'm like one of the third year residents uh, interested in doing an ultrasound fellowship. Um, so in my read of this uh, introduction background, um, you know, certainly the idea behind doing this optic nerve sheath diameter study is uh, as a surrogate for intracranial pressure. There's obviously a high bar to getting a true gold standard intracranial pressure because you have to put in a bolt and that implies a lot of risks. Um, and so if you can get a surrogate measure that's accurate, um, that could be really useful, especially if it's rapidly obtained. Um, in a low cost, uh, low resource setting that can be really useful um, to give you some information about changing clinical status. Um, and it looks like, you know, looking at some of the literature, the, the cutoffs previously have been pretty um, wide and not really well delineated. So that was one of the aims of this study is to see if they could find an accurate um, cutoff in this population and whether it was a good marker uh, and a good surrogate of true intracranial pressure. Yeah, that's great. And, and I'll add to what Mike just said, and uh, I think the OSU people probably have experienced with this, but every time I've ever taught ONSD in a group of healthy med students, all of their, you know, half of them end up having like a cutoff of six, right? And so it's like all of these students have like false positive findings. Um, so it makes me question, even before reading this paper, the utility of the cuts off, the cutoffs of five, six, seven, et cetera. Well put. I think you guys have hit on a number of points because there's a lot of heterogeneity in these prior studies, right? First of all, is the comparison to imaging or is it a comparison to actual measurement of ICP? That's one uh, variable in these studies. And then second of all, the cutoffs that they use, are they optimized for sensitivity? Are they optimized for specificity? So the prior literature has still left us with a number of questions. One good thing I think that's important to know is that you're not by yourself figuring this out. So there's the evidence atlas from your own Dr. Rasinthi. There's also um, quite a bit of literature out there, but the good news is POCUS is young. And so you don't have to go back 30, 40, 50 years. You have to go back like 10 or 20. Yeah, you can kind of see the progression here over time and the variables that we spoke about. The consistencies, and these are actually all meta-analyses, by the way, that I 
kind of picked out and some are better than others but you can see the sensitivity pretty good throughout specificity not quite as good so similarly said it ends up having pretty decent negative likelihood ratios but not as powerful positive likelihood ratios so with this background we can again see not exactly as consistent as you'd like especially for meta-analyses right and when there's different comparisons and different cutoffs used it's a little bit hard to tell what to do and that's why this study I like that it was prospective they were trying to compare it to an actual intracranial pressure measurement which is admirable and you know I think by taking the population that they take, we also have a good chance of seeing some decent pathology. Also, of, of a brief note, this article I was surprised to see is actually NIH-funded, which is kind of a rarity point-of-care ultrasound research, so great for them. Yeah, so I think summarizing the intro, there's a question that could be relevant to us. Um, we're not typically placing bolts in the emergency room, so if we could have another way to estimate um, intracranial pressure, maybe those cancer patients where you're worried is their tumor expanding and they've got edema, or are they altered because of an intracranial problem, or is it a metabolic problem? Like, when I read this intro, I say, okay, this question seems relevant to me. Um, there's not a lot here already, so it's not a study that's repeating something that's been done um, and maybe asking the same question in a different way. And there's not a lot of great literature out there, so this would fill a void. So that's kind of when I take in an intro, I wanna know like, is this something I even care about like that I would apply to my patients? And is it filling a void that hasn't been there or is it dismissing something that we find to be a normal practice? Like, is this gonna be practice reversing? And so I think that's when I take away from the intro. Those are the kind of the big points I wanna look for. So next we tackle the methods and I think this to me is my least favorite part because you can get deep in the weeds and I have like my biostatistics book for dummies that I will proudly claim <laughs> because this I think is the part that a lot of people skip over and is probably the most important part. So why don't you guys tell us what you thought about the methods? My name is Ross. I am one of the fourth year chief residents here at Denver Health. I'm also the co-host of a podcast called EMS Cast for pre-hospital providers. Um, the materials and methods in this study, they were in a setting of a 20 bed neurotrauma ICU, and they were looking for inclusion criteria for ages greater than 18 years who had a severe TBI and a first optic nerve sheath diameter measurement that was feasible within the first 48 hours of injury with the presence of an invasive ICP monitor. Exclusion criteria included patients unlikely to survive greater than 48 hours from enrollment, injury to globe of the eye or optic nerve sheath on either side, pre-existing ocular disease other than errors of refraction, and a therapeutic index level summary score greater than 10 attained or expected prior to the first optic nerve sheath diameter. So the index test was a sonographic measurement of optic nerve sheath diameter performed at enrollment and at least once daily until one of the following endpoints was reached. Either removal of the ICP monitor, a therapeutic index level greater than 10, and a maximum of seven days or death. They used four investigators who performed optic nerve sheath ultrasound studies at the point of care. None had prior experience with this. 
The optic nerve sheath diameter measurements were then repeated by expert investigators blinded to the point of care investigators' measurements. They were also blinded to the inv invasive ICP and all clinical details of the patient. These blinded expert measurements served as index measurements in analysis, diagnostic accuracy, while the point of care measurements were used to assess the reliability of measurements performed by inexperienced personnel. Images were acquired in the axial transverse plane, and they were deemed adequate quality only if all of the following were delineated. So globe, retina, optic nerve sheath with clearly demarcated margins on both sides, and the optic nerve within the optic nerve sheath. They obtained a 10 second clip and then scrolled through the images to acquire an ideal image for measurement. They used our standard measurement of measuring three millimeters behind posterior to the posterior scleral border and then they measured the optic nerve sheath diameter at this point. My name's Cody. I'm one of the interns. Um, I really like that they also compared the point of care measurement to that of an expert. Because I think the other part of this is how do you implement this in a real clinical setting and how teachable and how accurate are the measurements going to be. So I like that aspect in addition to how reliable is the measurement, how does it compare to the ICP. Yeah, that's a really good point. Who is interpreting it and how accurate are they and how much training they got? So we're definitely going to cover that because that comes up time and time again in these POCUS studies. Hey, my name is Claudia. I'm one of the third years here at Denver Health as well. Another thing I thought that they did well is um, they determined beforehand that they wanted this to be a screening test. So they felt like that would be how it would be optimally used in a clinical setting. And so they're setting their sensitivity um, standards higher than their specificity standards, which I think makes sense for the clinical question they were asking. And is also in line with the prior research that we saw. It's usually used as kind of a more sensitive test or that's that's been proven pretty well. So I really like how the paper was actually written where they clearly defined the index test, the reference test, um, and why they did each. Um, often when you're reading all types of literature, they don't say it so clearly and it made it really easy to follow along and then really think like, was this the appropriate index test or reference test? Um, so just, just a note on how the paper was actually written. And along the same lines, they also very clearly outlined what was going to happen if things didn't go as they had hoped, which, spoiler alert. I feel like that might be a little foreshadowing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> things didn't go as well as they had hoped. For example, they said, you know, we're going to do a assessment of the intraclass coefficient after we do a couple scans. Hopefully it'll be at least 0.8, and then if not, we'll remediate everybody. And likewise... They also said, we're going to set a minimum specificity of like 90% or something. And then if we don't get that, we're just going to take the best we can. So they kind of talked it through. And I, being a little skeptical, I always wonder if they put that in after they realized that things weren't going well. But, you know, we give them the benefit of the doubt. Hopefully they had this all planned out a priori and had just a fantastic design for their study. Yeah, so I think, you know, it is a little foreshadowing for the paper, and I agree up to this point. It sounds good. They have a very clear plan. Um, I do have some concerns, and I think we're going to touch on this a little bit more um, in detail, but the methods are really the meat of the paper, and if you end up confused at the end of the methods, they probably had to manipulate their data a lot to make something stick, which should raise red flags to 
is this accurate? Is this good? Um, and so that was kind of one of my concerns with this paper is where, yes, they set their sensitivities and specific or their specificities and they had a clear plan with a backup plan, but they had to implement that backup plan because they didn't have good intraorator reliability. They had very poor areas under the curve um, for their initial in objective and actually had to go to a secondary objective when they um, wrote up the paper and were analyzing their data. Uh, for, for Mike's point, I do really like that they seem to have set those cutoffs a priori. Um, it, it seems like that was definitely intentional. It wasn't so clear to me if they had set up that remediation uh, a priori, though. Um, I didn't really see that clearly delineated. I think it's okay. I think it's appropriate. Um, they kind of wrote the paper like they had planned for that, but it, it, I really am not certain <laughs> just based on the read. And the a priori cutoffs is super relevant because there's so many ultrasound papers where they do these prospective trials where you read it and it says, oh, this is a prospective trial, but then really what they do is they just go back and they say, this was the best cutoff. And then that's the cutoff that the ultrasound literature uses and that's the cutoffs that we as ultrasound educators teach. And that is so pervasive and such a problem in uh, uh, evidence-based sonology uh, that I think it needs a, a greater discussion. I think it was, um Interesting when you're going through the methods and you read about their calculating the interclass correlation coefficient, which I am relating similar to the iterator reliability, and how when they took their first measurement of that, they were shooting for greater than 0 0.8. And I think the first measurement was something like 0 0.16, and they had to do that remediation training. So pretty dang poor. At the end of the study, after remediation training, it was like 0.87, which is great. And, and honestly, review of images and remediation training is great for education, but doesn't translate to the real world, especially to those who are already out in practice per se. Um, hopefully, maybe there's a day where it can, or if you work in a good shop where you have a lot of good review, then maybe it can. But um, that really, when I saw that, if I was, if I was going to see a positive study, was going to... Uh, make me question the applicability of into the real world from those results. Well, and I don't know about your shop, but I don't think we're doing areas under the curve and inter-rate reliability on the regular with our QA process. So how would you even know that you needed to retrain, um, I think is a huge question. Um, you know, that's not, I do a lot of QPath, but not <laughs> that. <laughs> Prior to this discussion, we you have to lay down what was their training exactly, you know? Were these people like doing optic nerve sheath diameters 10 times a day for 20 years? No, they weren't. They got a one hour PowerPoint, they got 20 scans that were seemed to be supervised. So fairly low number of training, fairly novice operators here. So I think that goes towards what Cody was saying earlier where how relevant is this to practitioners and how much training do people need to put this into practice so you always can look in these papers to see what did it take to get them to this level and there's a spectrum of training and i think that both ends of the spectrum are valuable if you have a really novice population doing your study or fairly novice minimal training then that tells you that if this works out everybody can do it it's really feasible so it optimizes the feasibility. On the other hand, if you have like ultrasound rock stars doing these, these scans and it works out really well, that tells you, hey, this is a best case scenario. We know that when people train really hard, this can be a really good test. And that's valuable information too. But it is 
seldom both of those things at the same time. So you really have to look at the training and the population of who's doing the test. Yeah, I think that's clutch. Um, and I would say the novice is going to be more broadly applicable outside of an academic center. Um, you want it to be something that's A, within our scope, but B, feasible for Joe Schmo, who only had their ASAP minimum guidelines met during residency, that they can still pick up the probe and do this study. Otherwise, how much is it actually benefiting our patients? And I think that's really important. Um, I like that they used a machine that is readily available for most point of care providers. There's a couple other quick things that jumped out to me when I was rereading through these methods that weren't apparent the first time. First of all, the reference standard was an intraparenchymal monitor. That's great. We love that. Interestingly, in this population, they removed that monitor when their ICP got less than 20. So that's important. If it got less than 20, they took it out and then, you know, they're out of the study after that. So keep that in mind because there was also some confusing lingo about going back and forth between cutoffs of 22 millimeters of mercury and 25 millimeters of mercury. That, as I said in the intro, is something that's varied in some of these studies. But here it was especially confusing because my read is that their primary outcome was to use a cutoff of 25 millimeters mercury. But they often then go back and list results for the 22 millimeters mercury that seemed to be more significant to them. So watch out because they bounce back and forth. And that's why it's really important to examine and really look, like Matt said, what is their primary outcome? What are they using as their true reference standard? And then not be confused when they attempt to obfuscate some of these results with things that look more impressive. Another key point, Mike, is that they only got that ICP at some point in time and they didn't necessarily get the ultrasound when they got that ICP. And so if we're trying to correlate diameters or elevations with elevated ICP, ideally you should say when it's 25, this is my measurement. When it's 20, this is my measurement. So that you can see is like not just the presence of traumatic brain injury is causing their optic nerve sheath diameter or their optic nerve elevation, but that it's actually when the pressures are up. You totally read my mind. I was exactly going to say that because they actually only compared it to the highest optic nerve sheath diameter during the admission. That was what their standard was. So it wasn't necessarily when they measured it with the ultrasound, as we'll see from the results. And I had a question about the reference standard myself. Um, many centers aren't using uh, intraparenchymal monitoring, and I was wondering if that had any significance versus like a typical uh, external ventricular drain that I think we use here and, and I think I'm more familiar with. Um, apparently, they're both viewed similarly in academic for academic purposes and research purposes, but the actual clinical utility is a little debated because the intraparenchymal monitors, intraparenchymal monitors are looking at very specific parts of the brain versus the external ventricular drains, which gives a more global um, measurement. So I, I think they're okay, but it is worth thinking like, okay, I don't actually know what that reference standard is and what the significance is compared to others, and um, it's just a, a thought I had, but it's probably fine. Yeah, I think of this similar to we just switched from our regular troponins to our high sensitive D troponins. And the first time somebody told me the troponin was a thousand, and I was like, 
do I care? Like, is that bad? Um, I think you have to understand what your reference standard is. Um, and, and a part of the reason why you're probably seeing that difference is despite many of our authors being from the University of Michigan, the study was actually done in India. And while that doesn't mean it's not useful, and in fact, most of our POCUS literature comes from um, international studies, you have to say, is this my patient? Is this my practice environment? Um, and that's going to help you with interpreting your reference standards too. Um, remembering that emergency medicine is really fledgling outside of the United States. And so um, how they got to that critical care unit, what care they got before them, what's the standard of care where they are, knowing that some of the literature, evidence, and practice patterns are going to be different outside of the United States. And I have to say that the authors could have been more forthright with this information. I mean, you could have noticed that some of their associations were from medical centers in India, but it really didn't mention at all in the manuscript where these patients were. And I actually had to look up the clinical trials information to see that they enrolled patients only from India. So... You know, that's kind of relevant because, as Cray said, we don't know what sort of confounders might be differences between our patient populations. Well, I think that's enough for one podcast. I know we all have limited attention spans. So part two, again, will be out one week from this release date. Feel free, as always, to visit our website, ultrasoundgel.org. Talk to us on Twitter or go to our Facebook page. Until then, my friends, we will talk to you later. More, pressure, more, gel, 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 more